This is Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. There's so many different um, versions of Mary, and and I say the word versions uh, with some hesitance because it's not that she changes, but her appearance, uh, the way she speaks, never the message. The message is always the same. Love my son, serve him, um, honor me. But it's interesting. We can think about Mary in so many different ways, and we have throughout this entire Ave Explorer's journey. Uh, we've looked at her role as authentic men and women. We've we've looked at how she's present in our families. We've studied how she's with us in, in the moments of intense grief and pain. And I think it's important to kind of take a step back in the midst of all of this exploration of Our Lady and, and think about, explore together ways that Mary has appeared in history, moments where she has shown herself, where she has spoken, and, and where she has very much given a message that is important and relevant at the time that she appears. But see, the thing is, I sometimes don't even know where to start. You know, I, I have a theology degree, and I taught freshman theology for five years, and I've written books, and, and I've, I've been doing this podcast. But it's still interesting sometimes to take that step back and think there's so much about Mary that I don't know. And who can I turn to? Who's the expert that I can turn to to explain to me some particular moments in, let's say, Marian history? Moments like when Mary appeared to Juan Diego or moments when Mary appeared to a, a young French girl in the countryside, or moments when Mary appeared to three children in Portugal. Those are the three most famous Marian apparitions, Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of Fatima, and Our Lady of Lourdes. And today we present to you an interview with an expert on really all things Marian apparitions and miracles, uh, Michael O'Neill, who goes by the Miracle Hunter. He runs a website where he looks at, explores, and talks about different miraculous occurrences and Marian apparitions. He brings groups on tours to different pilgrimage sites. He gives talks. He, he has a television show and a radio show. This man is an expert on Marian apparitions. And we were lucky enough to be able to score an interview with him and, and really pick his brain about these three most famous Marian apparitions and, and learn about them and why they're substantial and why they're important and how they can help us understand who Our Lady is. So today on Ave Explorers, we present to you an interview with Michael O'Neill, the Miracle Hunter. So thanks for taking the time, Michael. We're really excited to have you on the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here today. Yeah, so Michael, I have I asked all our guests um, the same opening question. You and I find ourselves on an elevator together. The elevator gets stuck. We have five minutes together. Tell me about who you are. Well, this, uh, this comes up all the time. I travel a lot uh, hunting down miracles or giving presentations or working on any of these shows for EWTN. So I'm on an airplane or in an Uber ride with somebody. Yeah. And the question comes up, what do you do for a living? How do you, I, how do you tell I them sort of have an easy answer if I want to harken back to my earlier career as an engineer or as a designer. I get out of it that way. But lately, I've been trying to be more uh, forthcoming with what I do, which is yeah. I investigate miracles and I and I tell people about them. And so, uh, obviously, people of faith are, are are pretty excited to hear about that, and even people who uh, don't believe in anything find it a pretty uh, incredible thing. So uh, it's a fun thing to talk to somebody. Uh, who doesn't uh, doesn't know about miracles? Yeah, especially like the person who doesn't maybe believe in them. Like, how does that conversation usually go? Well, uh, you know, I 
I, I have had a few eye rolls uh, sent my way, but yeah. uh, you know, I think people are fascinated that somebody would dedicate their life to miracles as I have. And so, and I think uh, I, you know, sometimes it's uh, helpful to bring up my engineering background from Stanford or whatever. And people yeah. say, Oh, this is a very strange uh, transition of a career, yeah. but um, you know, I, they, they say, why is this guy uh, devoting his life to this? And, you know, I, I think that, you know, we talk about miracles and, you know, there, there are, there are these things, maybe it's uh, the Beatles, puppy dogs, ice cream, these things that are, everybody loves. But when it comes to miracles, Catholics, all Catholics love miracles. So that's an easy conversation, but believe it or not, atheists and skeptics also are very interested in miracles because they need to have an explanation and prove that the miracles aren't happening. Because if they are happening, if miracles happen, it proves God exists. And if God exists, that means we all have to change our lives a little bit, doesn't it? So, yeah. uh, so it's, a, it's kind of a, a serious question uh, for a lot of people. As fun as miracles are, people need to have an explanation for what's really going on. So it's almost like miracles are the on-ramp for some people. I mean, there's there's evidence that you know, faith is the, the, the proof or the, the belief in things unseen, and all of a sudden a miracle shows us something. What is that transition like from Stanford-educated engineer to the miracle hunter, which is such a cool job title? Like, I just, I'm so envious. Like, I'm just a writer, but you're a miracle hunter. That's pretty cool. Yeah, well, strangely enough, more people know my... Uh my pen name than my real name, but that's okay. But yeah, it's a, it's a fun job for sure. I feel very blessed to be able to uh, travel the world and investigate miracles and write about them and talk about them and uh, make television and radio about them. So it's, it's, I really feel I'm living a blessed, uh, blessed life to get to do it. But um, how did I go from engineer to, uh, to this, you know, chasing something that's uh, very ethereal to getting, getting hard numbers and facts. But yeah, uh, I, I think my brain is geared towards this sort of thing. I, I, you know, I think there's a lot of people who uh, look at miracles and, you know, miracles are inspirational and they make us feel good. And, you know, a lot of people will look at and say, everything's a miracle. You know, the fact that we're alive at all is a miracle or, or and that's all true. That's all true. Life is a miracle. Um, but when it comes to the things I like to look at, I like to look at the, the facts and the serious nature of how the Catholic Church looks at a medical healing, for example. It needs to be instantaneous, complete, and lasting cure of a serious condition not liable to go in its own, and there can be no medical treatment that relates to that cure. So this is called the Lambertini Criteria. It was developed by Prospero Lambertini, uh, born in the 1600s. He's a, an Italian cardinal, later Benedict XIV. Uh, so, I mean, the church has this very strict standard that it uses, and I love that. I love, I love that they have a process. They're not just hand-waving this stuff, saying, yes, it's a miracle. We prayed about it. It seems good. Uh, they, they've really got a serious process, and I love that. And I think that's my engineering brain who loves the data, loves the, loves the yeah. process. So anybody who's gone to my website, miraclehunter.com, can see I've got tons of information over the course of 20 years. I've got something like 2,500 Marian apparitions documented on my website. So wow. uh, serious, uh, serious number crunching from that point of view. So I've carried yeah. a little bit of it over. But really how I got into this in the first place is that, well, I love Mary, and, and the site is dedicated to the research of Mary and apparitions. Some people call it a Mary and apparition tracking website, which yeah. I, I like the way that, that's described. But um, I have a great devotion to Our Lady, and my mother had a great devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe, which mm. was kind of a funny thing in uh, 1950s white America for her to have this devotion. But she passed it along to me as as, long, as well as her the students who she ta who she's taught as a teacher. And so, um, you know, I've always been interested in that tilma of uh, Juan Diego and the story of the apparitions of Mary. And uh, I think by the time uh, I had graduated college and written a paper on Our Lady of Guadalupe's tilma for an archaeological class, um, 
I got this advice from Condoleezza Rice, who was the vice provost at Stanford where I was. And she said, <laughs> whatever you do in life, become an expert in something. And she kind of talked about how she was an expert in this tiny aspect of Czechoslovakian military history in one year. And she said, I know more about this tiny thing than anybody else in the whole universe. I'm, I'm sure of it. She said, find your sliver of the universe and own it. And so, I don't know, I thought that was really great advice. And that's kind of been ringing in my ears ever since I heard yeah. that as a senior in college. And so, um, so I, I registered the website, miraclehunter.com, because I love miracles. And I said, hey, I want to be the expert in miracles. And yeah. I'm not quite I'm sure I'm not quite if I'm sure there yet, but I'm getting close. <laughs> I mean, more than more than most folks that I know. Um, that's you said something in that that I thought was really beautiful that, you know, so many people are interested in these kinds of things. And I imagine people stumble upon your website if they just simply Google miracles or they simply Google like proof of miracles or they, they're curious to understand like some of the background and the history. There's almost, I think, in our culture right now, an obsession with the supernatural. I taught freshman theology for five years, and we would always play this game called Stop Miss Prejean, where I'd let students ask me questions about anything. And the number one question I would get asked about was demonic possession, because they wanted to understand, like, exorcisms, because they'd seen stuff on television, and they wanted to learn about miracles. Like, they wanted to know, um, is this true? Like, is it, is it, did this really happen? Like, does this blood really liquefy? Or does this, you know, did that lady really walk? And I think there's been so many phony things that have happened in the history of the world that people almost have this mental hang-up, but they want to believe. They long to understand the supernatural, or at least embrace the mystery of it in a really, really cool way. That's right. And I think you can look at uh, television, books, video games, uh, supernatural is everywhere. And so yeah. it's, uh, it's it's in our heart. It's in our culture that uh, people are attracted to this. And it answers a big question. What else is there? Is this all there is? And when we have the supernatural, we know God is there and we have an expectation of a life in heaven after after we die. So, you know, the supernatural is very important to everybody because it answers that question of where are we going? who we are. So, um, you know, I think uh, talking to young people, they're excited. They ask the same questions. They want to know, is this true? Is this false? Uh, you know, the demonic, for example, it's obviously a dark preoccupation that some people have, but really it's really an interest in the other side of the dark because where there is dark, there must be light. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, if the devil is really there, though, God is there too. God created him or whatever. Yeah. So, um, you know, so I think it's an important thing. Uh, everybody gets interested in miracles just a little bit. And I think it is that, that on-ramp. Uh, it can open the door to faith that people can accept that there are some believable miracles. There are lots of hoaxes out there. For example, 2,500 Marian apparitions in history. 28 times only has a local bishop ever given any sign of approval towards a Marian apparition. And 16 times on top of that has the Vatican recognized it. So it's a tiny sliver. The numbers are small. You look at Lourdes even. I mean, there have been 7,000 cures that have been examined by the uh, medical commission there. And those are some of the top cures that have ever happened there. So they're, they're remarkable. However, only 70 have ever passed muster throughout history at Lourdes. So it's a tiny wow. fraction. So if you go by that logic that the church is very careful when approving these things and only the most extremely uh, convincing cases ever make it through, that, I don't know, that, that, that gives me a little bit of a, a good feeling that they're not just pushing everything through. And going yeah. Through. 
it's not, it's not just a rubber stamp, right? Like there's, there's legitimate conversation and discussion and investigation. So you mentioned um, a name there that I'm sure many of our listeners know of, but just want to, uh, we're going to talk for the rest of this episode about three of the, the big three, so to speak, the, the three Marian apparitions that are approved in that list that you gave. Um, and that most people know whether just by sight, because the images are very distinct or just by, by name and by story, because it's kind of part of culture, whether you're Catholic or not. And so you mentioned Our Lady of Lourdes. So I'm going to act like I'm somebody who knows nothing about the church. Um, I'm going to hide my my medal of Mary around my neck for just a second. And tell me about Lourdes. Tell me about this place in France that people flock to from all over the world because there's a fountain or there's water or a grotto. And this lady showed up and said something about the Immaculate Conception. Give me the rundown of Our Lady of Lourdes. So it's a, it's an absolutely incredible place. I was just there last week. There was oh, wow. <laughs> um, it's great to talk about it. It's very fresh in my memory. Uh, you know, and, and people talk about, uh, you know, there's all these different Marian apparition sites around the world. And even here in the United States, we've got Champion, Wisconsin, Our Lady of Good Help, which is a very simple shrine. But when you talk about uh, Marian apparition sites, that is the ultimate as far as the way Catholics, faithful, the church has celebrated this. So it all started in 1858 with a 14-year-old girl named Bernadette Subaru. She was very sickly and her family was very poor. And uh, she was out one day gathering firewood for her family. You know, they, they had no money. They had they just needed to keep warm and survive. The father had uh, been sick, had lost his job. They had lived in the basement of a prison for some time, lived in the family member's home. So they were really uh, hit with tough times. And, and that area was very, uh, very rough as well. And so on her way to collect firewood, she saw a beautiful woman uh, dressed with a blue sash and a, and a rosary and uh, rose, roses on her feet. And uh, and eventually, over the course of days, she came back home and her mother prevented her from going back. But her sisters convinced the mother to let her go back. And so she kept getting these uh, visions of the person who described herself as the Virgin Mary. I am the Immaculate Conception, as she said in, uh, in a very basic French, a patois French. And so people started to come in, in droves. You know, there were some people initially interested and then the crowds got very big and very big. And in one of the big events uh, at Lourdes, and, and this is this is this probably was quite the scene, but Mary gave the instruction to young Bernadette to to go to bend down to the ground and start digging into the ground and actually actually take a drink or a eat eat the the, the grass that was growing there. And with all Marian apparition cases, the number one question is: Is this person crazy? Yeah. Are they saying things <laughs> that they think are, are in their head that are real? But so. Um, so people, a lot of people, you know, were discouraged when they saw young Bernadette digging this, digging in the ground and eating the mud and eating the grass. And I mean, what, what a scene. But from that, from that uh, opening in the ground came forth a spring. And uh, it, people began to bathe in the water of that spring. And it's become the most famous place of healing in the entire world. And so uh, there have been, there were so many cures from people who had bathed in that spring that they began to post on the walls of the local church all the cures that people were claiming. And the local church authorities were getting angry because they were saying, how do we know if these are real cures or not? Well, in fact, uh, they set up a medical commission and there's only two places in the world that studies miracles. Everybody thinks that when a miracle happens, uh, so someone calls the Pope on a red phone yeah. and he <laughs> sends out a miracle hunter who goes rushing over to check to see if a cure happened. It doesn't work that way at all. <laughs> Only in canonization causes where they look for the intercession of a saint or at Lourdes in France, 
Do they have a medical commission made up of scientists and doctors from all around the world who de dedicate their time? They're the top experts in the world. And they actually look at these cases to see if they're believable, if there's a natural explanation. Mm -hmm. And so uh, at Lourdes, there were so many miracles being claimed that they set up this medical commission. And uh, people still go there today and even submit their cures to the commission that way. But, but Lourdes really has become a great place of healing. When I was there, you saw in procession so many people in wheelchairs. Uh, they call them the malad, the, the people who come who are ill, who seek healing, both spiritual and physical. And it was all because of this 14-year-old girl who the Catholic Church actually said it was believable in the supernatural character of the event, and they said it was an approved apparition of Mary. And now it has one of the most beautiful basilicas on site there, and it has uh, the canonization of young Bernadette happened as well. So, uh, and her body lies uh, in, in an incorrupt state. There's all these miracles and wow. recognition uh, around Lourdes, and it's really, uh, when you go there, it's a little bit of a Catholic Disneyland, you might say. <laughs> Even the church itself looks like the Disneyland castle. but um, And it's all because this 14-year-old girl claimed visions of Mary and the Catholic Church, even though they were skeptical as fir at first, like they always are, they said, you know, this is a true miraculous event, and it's been celebrated around the world since then. So of those, you said 70 are approved actual healings. Um, are there any, like, profound stories within those those 70, like somebody that we would know by name or just, like, something really crazy, like a person couldn't walk and now they could? So there's uh, there's numerous uh, incredible stories, and people can go to MiracleHunter.com. I've got all 70 cures listed there. And uh, one aside is that it's important to recognize how difficult it is to get a miraculous cure approved. Mm -hmm. First of all is that you actually need to um, report your cure immediately at the medical bureau. You can't go home and, and, and yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. so, you, you have to come back. But And then you have to come back on your own dime. The Lourdes Commission doesn't pay you to fly back from the United States. Mm -hmm. And you have to get your own doctors here in the United States to submit your cure. If they don't think it's miraculous, they're not going to do it. So you have to have your local doctor do it. Yeah. You have to fly back a number of times. And it takes at least 10 years before any cure is actually uh, validated. So, so you, have, you have to believe it. You have to believe that it's really, truly a miracle to invest in that. Absolutely. And I know I've talked to members of the Lord's Medical Commission, and one, one told me this really fascinating story. He said, there was a woman who was blind, uh, blind in both eyes. And uh, she, she made a prayer when she went to Lourdes. She went to the baths of Lourdes and she prayed. She said, uh, Mary, please uh, grant me my, that my eyesight might return, that I might see my grandchildren just one time and that I might pray the rosary with them. Yes. That's my only request. If, if, if I could have any miracle, if I could have anything, that's what I would love. Sure enough, she went in the waters of Lourdes. She came out, and her vision was restored. And she saw her children, and she prayed the rosary. And her vision was perfect from that day on for the entire rest of her life. And she submitted that cure to the medical commission at Lourdes. They examined it, and sure enough, her vision was perfect. And it there was documentation that her vision was uh, she had none prior to that event. It turns out that uh, whatever the phenomena was in her eye, the macular degeneration or uh, whatever the pathology was, it was still the same. It hadn't healed. It hadn't returned to a perfected state. So she was seeing despite physically not being able. That sounds miraculous to me. I'm the miracle hunter. Yeah. Miracle. But that commission said the pathology did not heal. And therefore, that is not a true miracle of Lourdes. Mm. A remarkable cure for sure. But right. not one of the true miracles. And so, you know, we, we have this uh, this case that just came up maybe a year ago of this uh, Sister Bernadette is her name. A good good name for a healing yeah, word. Yeah. <laughs> so 
she uh, she had this uh, problem where she was unable to walk. She had uh, spinal problems. She had numbers of surgeries over the years. She was unable to walk. She showed up at Lourdes in a wheelchair, and uh, she went to the baths of Lourdes, and she uh, she came out, and she was actually able to walk. And uh, she returned home uh, to France, and she actually walked five kilometers in celebration of this miraculous cure wow. <laughs> upon returning home. So uh, this is the most recent case, the 70th case that was just announced. So uh, th there are many incredible cases. Uh, there have been cases of uh, people who have been almost presumed to be dead or on their deathbed who have come, come back to, to life, so to speak. So uh, there's, there's many cases that, that really make you say, you know, what, what was happening there? What, yeah. what was doing in, in, in those cases. And so only 70 have been approved, but uh, the 70 that, that have made it through that process are absolutely remarkable. That's great. I mean, I, I've got a little vial of Lord's water that a friend of mine gave me years ago, and it sits on a shelf in our kitchen. Probably not like the best place ever, but I can see it just throughout the day. I pass by it a dozen times, and I'm just I was like, I don't know, I'm just going to keep it right there. I, I might need it someday. <laughs> I hope that you're enjoying this episode with Michael O'Neill and learning a lot, both about Our Lady of Lourdes and Our Lady of Fatima and Our Lady of Guadalupe, that you're you're taking notes on all the different ways that Mary has not only manifested herself and, and appeared in this world, but ways that we ourselves can get to know her better. You know, I'm sitting at my desk right now and, and listening to this interview again with Michael as I'm editing this podcast, and I'm just struck by the fact that, you know, this podcast is part of a series of content that we've created that really does tell the story of Our Lady and encourages all of us to get to know her more. And so you can click on over to AveMariaPress.com and see everything that we've created for Ave Explorers, articles, other podcast episodes, videos, things for you to help you get to know who Our Lady is and again, why she matters in your life. So I hope you'll take advantage of all of that. Go over to AveMariaPress.com to see more of what we've created for Ave Explorers. So Our Lady of Lourdes is very, very well known because it's a place of, of great healing. Our Lady of Fatima is often talked about because there was this remarkable miracle of the sun and there were these children and these promises and we hear about the promises all the time. Tell me a little bit about Our Lady of Fatima and Portugal. Absolutely. So this, uh, the Our Lady of Fatima apparitions, I like to refer to them as the gold standard of Marian apparitions because um, when we, when we look at the history of Marian apparitions, there are so many beautiful ones throughout history. Uh, but before perhaps the Council of Trent in 1545 to 1563, the Catholic Church did not have an investigative process for Marian apparitions. And so we look at things like uh, Our Lady of the Brown Scapular, the, the Mount Carmel. Uh, we know many people wearing that scapular, and that is one of the most celebrated and famous of all Marian apparitions. But it was never investigated by the Catholic Church. It just comes down to us through tradition. Uh, some people would call it pious legend, if you want, but uh, yeah. it's something that doesn't, hasn't gone through the rigors of testing. If you look at the modern era of Marian apparitions, Fatima is the ultimate because they did investigate those children. And there were three children, uh, Francisco, Jacinta, and Lucia, uh, three young children in Fatima, and they began to see visions of the Virgin Mary. And, um, you know, in those in those visions, of course, the their parents, as always the parents do, they say, stop lying, stop making this up, you're creating a stir. The local, you know, church authorities were saying stop, and, and the, even the uh, civil authorities abducted them on one of the apparitions, and <laughs> and, uh, and it was it was very interesting because Mary appeared on the thirteenth month, uh, from May thirteenth, nineteen seventeen, to October thirteenth, the great sun miracle in the end. But uh, when those children were taken by the local authorities, 
They were, you know, at first they were offered candy to change their story. Then they were separated and threatened that they were going to be boiled in oil in order to recant their story. So, uh, you know, and these children stuck with it, you know, and, uh, you know, throughout the course of these apparitions, they said they had seen things like the vision, a vision of hell. And on the final day, they had always asked for a sign because the people were getting anxious. People came first, first the local community, then thousands. And then by the 13th of this 1917, 70,000 people came because there was supposed to be a miracle performed on that day. And it's an interesting thing because we talk about mass delusion. delusion. People say they see things. Mm-hmm. Somebody can convince another person that they're seeing something. But what was so interesting to me about that miracle is uh, Lucia pointed up to the sky and said, look at the sun. And everybody looked up and they saw the sun spinning, descending to the earth, perhaps. Uh, everybody freaked out in a big way. And, uh, but it uh, gave them a great sense of peace when the, when the sun just shone like it normally does. But uh, what was so interesting to me is that it had been raining all day long there in the COVID area. And the, the ground was covered with these giant puddles and mud. And they were soaked waiting for this miracle. When the sun uh, had this phenomenon, we don't know what it really was. Uh, their clothes were dry. The ground was completely, the water was evaporated. So you could call it mass delusion, but that doesn't explain uh, the miracle of uh, no. what, what happened there. So, um, and this is, this is perhaps the, the most celebrated of all Marian apparitions, especially in modern times, uh, because we have John Paul II, uh, whose assassination attempt happened on uh, the feast of Our Lady of Fatima. And, uh, and he believed it was the intercession of Our Lady of Fatima. So he became the Fatima Pope. Mm-hmm. He really prom- promoted the message of Fatima as well. So uh, we have the same thing. We have the building of a basilica, the canonization of the visionaries. I was there on May 13, 1917, broadcasting with EWTN and taking a pilgrimage group there. And uh, it, was, it was amazing to be there for that 100-year centenary. So many people there. A million people were there, along with Pope Francis and the two visionaries were canonized and maybe Sister Lucia someday as well. So the church has highly recognized these visions and uh, it's, it's really an incredible thing. I think that when people talk about what are the most credible of all Marian apparitions, that has to be at the top of the list. For sure. Now, when Our Lady of Fatima appeared to these children, she, she wasn't giving them candy. What was she telling them? So uh, there were, there were uh, secrets, of course, of Fatima, the famous secrets of Fatima. She showed them a vision of hell. Um, and she, she also asked them to pray the rosary. That was a, that was a very basic message. Uh, you know, pray the rosary. And, uh, and, and really, the, the message of Fatima is about conversion. And uh, we, we have to we pray for the conversion of sinners, but we're also to pray for our own personal conversion as well. And so um, and one of the things that was so fascinating is that uh, Jacinto and Francisco were predicted that they would die very young and that Sister Lucia would live to old age. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, the, the two youngest died of the Spanish flu, but Sister Lucia lived to old age, and she became kind of the spokesperson for Fatima for all those years. Yeah, that's profound. I mean, I, I, I traveled a bunch of youth conferences, and Our Lady of Fatima statues have been at quite a few of them in just the past few years. Um, she's, she's definitely a, a visible and noticeable figure. Um, so that leads us then to, I think, the one that I do know the best, because I used to teach Our Lady of Guadalupe to my students, because there's so much surrounding this image that you can just find on the Internet. It's very easy, but it's probably not always the most accurate descriptions and articulations. Our Lady of Guadalupe, the patroness of the Americas, um, a very holy site that quite a lot of people can very easily get to from the States, just a couple of flights over from Houston. Um, so tell us about Our Lady of Guadalupe and uh, Blessed Juan Diego, or is he St. Juan Diego now? Hey, Juan Diego. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so people often ask me, what's my favorite of all Marian apparitions? And I always say Our Lady of Guadalupe. Oh, oh good. I, I saved the best for last. <laughs> I think, I think people expect me to give some very, uh, some very rare esoteric kind of uh, comment about my favorite one, but that truly is my favorite Marian apparition. And because my mother had the great devotion, I worked for the uh, National Shrine or the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe and La Crosse. I did some work with them for years and, um, you know, and it, it's got everything you could want. It's got this permanent image of Mary. It's got the great story, the second greatest story ever told about Juan Diego. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was I was there just in June this past uh, this past June, and uh, it was it's very special. I was filming there with EWTN, and I got to interview the Bishop Rector of the Shrine. It was his oh, first wow. international interview. Got to talk to all the scientists and experts on the tilma, and it's a uh, the tilma for people who don't know is the cloth, the cloak of Saint Juan Diego. And the story is that there was this man, a 57-year-old man. He's a middle-class man named, uh, the term is Masahul, I think, in, in Spanish. And he was a, tent, a mat maker, a tent maker. And on his way, uh, walking one day, he was walking to church, and he, he heard birds and singing. And he kind of had a, wondered what it was. It, it, he was. He was hopeful that maybe this was some sort of a sign from his wife who had died, uh, Maria Lucia. And he, uh, he walked up the hill to see what this beautiful sound was. And it was a vision of a young woman, a mestiza, meaning that she's she looked like she was half uh, half native and half Spanish. She had dark colored skin and she was dressed in a very interesting way. And uh, she gave Juan Diego the request to go to the local bishop and to tell him to build a church, a chapel, a temple, as she said, in order to make her son manifest. She, uh, she's the mother of God, so she wanted to, uh, to bring people closer to her son, which is the point of all Marian apparitions, really. And so Juan Diego kind of had that answer that we all have. Who am I? Who am I to evangelize? I'm not the right guy. Get the next guy. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so Juan Diego goes to the bishop, and of course the bishop, like all good bishops do, when they hear a report of a, a wild apparition or a miracle, they say, okay, uh, so show me some <laughs> proof. And so uh, Juan Diego, of course, uh, he asks Our Lady for proof, and um, you know, he's again, he's very shy about this whole thing. And his uncle is sick one day and he decides to try to get back to his uncle. And he tries to circumvent Mary on his way back to his uncle, which might be my favorite part of the story. <laughs> he, he recognized her as, as uh, the mother of God, perhaps. And yet he tries to scoot around her and not yeah. <laughs> evade her on the way home. But she appears to him anyway. And she says, don't worry, I will take care of your uncle. And she went and healed him in the fifth apparition. But uh, she said, go to the top of the hill and you'll find a sign and, uh, and take it to the bishop. So Juan Diego, this is in the, it's the beginning of December. And of course, uh, there shouldn't be any vegetation growing, especially Castilian roses. Spanish roses are growing at the top of this hill. And Juan Diego says, surely this is the sign that the bishop who is Spanish will see. I am bringing him Spanish roses. This must be a sign that Our Lady does want this church to be built. So he, he folds up the roses in his tilma, in his cloak, and he goes to the bishop, and he says, I've got the sign for you. He opens up the tilma, and the bishop does not care about the roses because the, the roses fall to the floor, and emblazoned on his tilma is the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe beautifully on this uh, large cloth that he would carry uh, to uh, keep him warm, made of cactus fibers, emblazoned on that cloth, is the image of our, of our Lady. And of course, uh, according to the story, he sees it, he believes, and a church is built to honor Our Lady. And, our, and Juan Diego serves as the caretaker of that church uh, for the rest of his life. And uh, he goes down as a saint, uh, both through local tradition and canonized by John Paul II in Mexico City in 2002. So 
Um, you know, it's, it's an absolutely incredible story, and it's really a great story of how do we bring Christ to the world, and how do we listen to the inspirations of, of Mary, our mother, uh, to do this. So it's my favorite of all Marian apparitions. And to make matters even more interesting, that tilma, that cloak, that legendary cloth that happened in 1531, according to the, the stories, it still exists even today, and you can make that pilgrimage to Our Lady of Guadalupe and see that, that cloth for yourself. So tell me about that cloth, because it's the cactus fibers make it impossible to paint something as detailed as this. And that wasn't there like a study done by Kodak at one point that the colors were not found like anywhere else, like they couldn't reproduce them? So there have been many studies of this uh, miraculous Tillman. And perhaps one of the most interesting things is that it was, it was done on cactus fiber. And uh, there have been uh, actually reproductions of the Tilma done on the same kind of cloth by local artists who have painted their own Guadalupe's. And those have all deteriorated within 30 to 50 years. And so for some reason, this cloth, even though it was exposed to candles and, and, and whatnot and, and the elements at some point, um, you know, it still exists all these hundreds of years later. So that, that's miraculous. Uh, other miracles they point to that there was a bomb scare in 1921. Uh, so there was some anti-Catholic sentiment uh, in Mexico at that time, and a bomb was placed in a vase of flowers right below the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. It was said the bomb could be heard a mile away, and the crucifix that's there was mangled and completely uh, completely warped, and they actually have that, that crucifix in the back of the church now. You can go up and see it. But the uh, Tilma of Our Lady of Guadalupe is, is perfectly intact. And then there was the uh, nitric, acid, nitric acid spill in 1785, where a worker was cleaning the silver frame around Our Lady of Guadalupe's image, and he accidentally spilled acid on the image, and the image still remains intact because wow. of, after that. So, um, but then, as you mentioned, they say, well, what is this painting? What is this image? Catholics will say, well, this is a miracle. God has made this image. There's no, there's no way that this is done by human hands. At least that was the belief. But mm -hmm. scientists over the years have looked at it, and actually there was a study done by IBM, uh, through to looking at the eyes of the Tilma, there have been some claims that there are some sort of reflections in the eyes of the Tilma of Juan Diego. Um, and also, uh, the colors of the paint on the Tilma has been examined as well. And it's not found to be animal, vegetable, or mineral. They do not know how the paint was made. There are no brush strokes on the Tilma, which you would expect in a painting. And as you said, the cactus fiber is so fibrous and difficult, it's almost impossible to get something so beautiful. And even the lip of Our Lady of Guadalupe is a piece of fiber that's protruding more than the rest of the cloth that's wow. actually built into the design of the Tilma. So it's quite fascinating. It, it's truly God's, it's God's masterpiece. And, uh, you know, he, his art project in some sense, it's really profound. Now, have there been healings associated with the Tilma of Our Lady of Guadalupe? Because it's a hugely popular pilgrimage site. There's a little... Um, you know, walking, a uh, moving sidewalk underneath it so you can go past. And a f quite a few of my friends have made pilgrimages there. It's on my bucket list one of these days. But, of course, are there documented miracles surrounding the image? So people come from all around the world to venerate this image. And, you know, we talk about uh, Lourdes. I think there's 4 million a year, 5 million a year to Fatima. Uh, 9 million people a year come to, to see the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And in the in the plaza leading up to, to the uh, basilica there, you'll see many people approaching on their knees across the stone pavers across that, uh, that, that plaza. And then there's a moving walkway once you get inside. So even though there's mass going on, uh, people can be underneath, uh, underneath the mass and going, going on a moving walkway and still see the tilma. 
Regarding miracles, there have been many claims of miracles throughout throughout the ages. And I think that, you know, you have people who have been uh, paralytics who have, uh, once they saw the image or touched the image, they've been able to walk. There's a tradition of, of things like this. There are so many, and people leave their requests for miracles on little pieces of paper that they that they leave there uh, at, at the image as well. And so it does not have the documentation of a Lourdes, for example, where there's a medical commission. Uh, most of these miracles are, you know, Throughout the ages, there have been reports of these things, and perhaps in the, the rectory there at the shrine, they have a book that's full of those miracles, but it doesn't have a the documented process that Lourdes does. But uh, as is the case of any of these places of apparitions, Lourdes, Fatima, Guadalupe, Knock in Ireland, you have a, a huge number of healing miracles that are reported there. So hearing all these things about Our Lady showing up, uh, why does she do it? I mean, it, we, it, it might seem silly to say, like, yeah, Mary just visits the people that she loves or she visits because she has a message or maybe she's bored. Or, But why why does God allow his mother? And I know that's a weird sentence to say, but she is the mother of God. Why does God allow his mother to appear to people? And what is she trying to accomplish? I think it's, it's a tricky question. And I think, you know, a lot of people have struggled with this question, uh, both Catholics and Protestants alike, uh, these claims of Marian apparition. What's the point anyway? And, you know, I myself have thought about this quite a bit over the years. I've been, you know, thinking about Marian apparitions and putting the MiracleHunter.com website together. And, you know, at the beginning when I was looking at it, I was just really interested in the data. How mm-hmm. often is she appearing? How long is she staying? How many visionaries there are? Is this approved? Is this condemned? What miracles have happened there, et cetera. So I've, I've logged all the data. But eventually I have all the data and I stepped back and I said, well, what's the point of all this anyway? And really, I think Mary comes to us as a loving mother in uh, humanity's greatest needs. I mean, we, we have all these stories throughout the ages of, uh, of uh, Mary appearing at times of famine, of war, of sickness, um, and, and, and both small stories on a local level and on bigger stories as well. And so, um, but why does she come? Why, why does she come as a loving mother to us? Well, we need her. But she's really there to draw us closer to her son. She points us to her son. So, you know, I think there are, have been numerous cases where uh, the local place where Mary appears, people have lost faith and she restores faith by her visions. And I think uh, people see the, the loving attention of a mother and are drawn to her. So, you know, I think that's the common thing. And, you know, she calls for a peace, prayer and conversion across the board. And I like to joke that she's the greatest architect in human history, because oftentimes when she shows up, of course, she encourages people to uh, return right. to a life of prayer, but she also says, by the way, build me a church. Yeah. And, uh, and people often do in Thanksgiving for, for these great uh, miraculous moments. That's great. I love that image of she brings us closer to her son. And she's an architect, an architect of both buildings and faith. Um, awesome. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time today. Where can people find you and all of your great work? So everything can be found at MiracleHunter.com. And I'm on social media, Facebook and Twitter, especially uh, people should pay special attention to EWTN. I've got a series called They Might Be Saints. It's uh, the stories of people on the path to sainthood and the search for canonization miracles. And we filmed about 10 episodes already, and those will be coming out later this year. Uh, in addition, there'll be a travel series called Miracle Hunter on EWTN uh, this summer as well. And I've got uh, a great new book coming out with Ave Maria Press, and that's uh, November 22nd uh, is the launch date. And that's uh, talking about the 10 most famous apparitions of Mary. And uh, (laughs) the theological background to the titles that are attributed to her. So um, I'm very excited to partner with Avi Maria Press to to bring that up. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This was great. I think we've all learned a lot.
you know, we wanted to put Michael's interview here in the fourth week of Ave Explorers because he's really telling us these stories about our lady's presence in our lives in this these manifested apparition ways. I know that's probably not the most technical theological terminology to use, but suffice it to say that I learned quite a lot about Our Lady and having this conversation with him, quite a lot about these apparitions that I've known by name and by picture, but haven't really known in detail. And it piqued my curiosity. I went over to his website, like he encouraged us to do, and read around and clicked around and and looked at all these different things. And if anything, it showed me that the story of Our Lady is not one with a period, but really with an ellipsis, with a dot, 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 with a to be continued, that Our Lady assumed body and soul into heaven, the queen of heaven, the mother of the church, our mother, is a mother that is active and that is present and that continues to work. And ultimately her work is to lead us close to the heart of her son. For four weeks we've done this, We've talked about, we've looked at, we've read about. Hopefully you've taken advantage of all the things that we've created for you over at AveMariaPress.com for this Ave Explorer series. And, and here at the end of it, as we look ahead to what's coming for Ave Explorers, I, I really do think that we're not finishing the conversation about Mary. We are putting an ellipsis on it. We're putting a dot, dot, dot. We're continuing this conversation. We've got a series coming up in January not about Our Lady specifically, but about mental health, about how to be mentally healthy, about why mental health is something that we should talk about, there should be stigmas around it, about why it's necessary that as a church we should care about the mental health of of everyone. But that comes on the heels of this series that we've done where we've really taken this look at Our Lady from all different angles, from a personal and from a theological perspective, and, and really hope that we've encouraged you to open yourself up to her. Mary is not done acting in this world, and Mary's not done acting in your life. And hopefully Ave Explorers was an on-ramp for you to be able to think about her, to make room for Mary in your life, and to take your faith to a, a next level. When we were creating all the taglines for Ave Explorers and, and sitting in a conference room brainstorming, the word that kept coming up to all of us was everyday, everyday faith. Faith for people who are striving to be good and holy men and women in their particular unique circumstances day in and day out. Faith for moms and dads who are just trying to help their kids be good Catholics while they're trying to be good Catholics themselves. Faith for teachers and and for educators, for DREs and youth ministers, for folks in the trenches within parish life, and for folks who just show up to Mass on Sunday and and love their faith and want to know more and really everyone in between that this was for you to grow in your faith a little bit more and a little bit better every single day. And Mary, I think, has helped us do that really, really well. The Ave Explorer series is one that is certainly going to continue and more information will be coming out soon about how to get signed up again for all of the new content we've got coming in the next few weeks. But for now, as always, you can click on over to the Ave Maria Press website. The link is down in the show notes. And you can find all of the backlogged content of Ave Explorers. This week four, we have some really great pieces, some things that I think you're particularly going to find exciting and enjoyable. So again, make sure that you go check all of that out. AveMariaPress.com, all the Ave Explorers content for you to continue to grow in your faith every single day. 
day.